0: Welcome to another episode of the Reimagining Work podcast. This is episode 33. Uh, I'm doing a little intro. First, we tried Blab. Again, that didn't work. So we switched over to Skype and the connections weren't that good. So the first bit of this interview is not that good, but we uh, we're getting better along the way uh, as we turn off video, clears up a lot of bandwidth and uh, the recording becomes considerably better. So if you bear with us, um, just listen to the podcast. It's with um, Erik Korsvik Ostengard and John Wenger and myself. Um, It's a good one, Uh, again, I must say. So I hope you enjoy it and bear with us through the technical difficulties.
1: So, welcome to episode 33 and a third, made specially for your long playing records of the Reimagining Work podcast, and we are very pleased to have another special guest this week. We have Eric Osterard. Is that right? No? Yeah, it is. Say it again? Yeah, I do like to get names right. Um, And you're based in Denmark. Um, Eric has has a, a very long and interesting work history. He's been a department manager and a project manager for many years in large and small enterprises, working um, in the cross-section of IT and business. So it's really relevant for the way that we like to have these conversations about reimagining work. Mm. Um, he holds a master's degree in science, uh, master, sorry, master's of science in chaos mathematics and you play the jazz piano. I, I kind of thought it'd be interesting to say you hold a Master of Science in Jazz Piano and you play Chaos <laughs> Mathematics. You play Chaos Mathematics. Because I can imagine it's pretty really interesting crossovers there.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's Jazz Fusion, or Fusion Jazz. Fusion Jazz, yeah. Mm.
1: And um, Eric is the co founder of Block and Oostergard, a management consulting firm. Um, and you focus on new leadership and future of work. And again, these topics really interesting for us as we're sort of um, in that sort of bit of reimagining work. So maybe you could say a little bit about what you mean. By new leadership and future of work,
2: mm. and take it from there. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, and thanks for taking the time just to to listen in to what I do and what we think. But let, let's 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 take a case of what I'm doing. This morning, I actually I actually spoke with a guy who sat with a company. He's the manager there. He he wants to grow the company from from twenty to hundred employees and have almost no management, no leaders there. He wants to leave it all up to the employees to to handle the culture, to handle onboarding, to handle training, to handle uh, coaching of each other. And he wants to actually get out of the way because he wants a very flat organization. And what we spent two hours talking about that was everything from Feedback culture, decision making, we're talking about um, how to work with documents in the line where you go from Knowledge management into social business instead, and you add something like experience and uh, and uh, in- interpretation of documents on top of that. So all the social layer, all the all the attitude, all the culture that you put into business is the is the, the cross section that we work with. There, so that's uh, that's one aspect of what I'm working with. When we're looking at the notion future of work, it is kind of contradictory because the future is already here now and and it is an obsolete term already. But it is the the leaving the old thinking of the transactional economics into the new thinking of a circular economics and with notion about the fourth uh, industrial uh, revolution and... and, uh, all that is what kicks in. It's much more about what goes on between people than on, on processes and products.
0: Mm. I do think that because um, if we do accept the term future of work as, as being reasonable obsolete, it's more something that you, you have to start working on now rather than somewhere in the future but it's still very descriptive of what it is that we mean Um, so i think it's still a term that we we're allowed to use in order to uh, just um subscribe what it is that we think about so
1: yeah and at the risk of you know some listeners or the listener um getting no, because we're using the term. I think it's a nice. It's nice for us to have shorthand while we're kind of moving into a new space. Mm-hmm. We're redefining all of these things anyway as we go. And I was thinking, as as you started to describe that, Eric, that you're in a really interesting space with that client, like wanting to um, really disperse power and authority right across the organization as they as they want to grow and make it flat. Yeah. But there's an interesting interplay when you're in that middle bit of the leader or the manager saying, This is what I want to happen. So there's kind of an irony of I want this I want you to do this, but the this is take up more kind of autonomy and control in your work. So it kind of requires that that, that something that needs to happen with all of the, the staff where they are doing it because they because it's an act of will, because they, they wish it to be so, because they think it's a good idea as well. They're not just doing it out of compliance because then you get you get something, if it's, if it's purely out of compliance, then you don't get the end result. if you see what I mean? So
2: yeah, it's a really absolutely.
1: interesting space you're working in right
2: now. There's a huge difference between if it's by, by will or by gunpoint. Yes. Yeah, exactly. A yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: One of the, the, the clients that I spoke to um, t- today's is Tuesday, that was, that was yesterday actually. They are in a highly regulated industry. They uh, they produce software for the pharmaceuticals and for the financials industry. So they are highly regulated. So they are used to having top-down procedures. They're used to doing a lot of QA and QC on whatever they do. So when I, I went there and, and we talked about having uh, culture workshops where we, where we discuss uh, how we want to have the department in, in that context, first thing that I was was. Uh, presented with was, well, can you give me a strict project plan with, uh, with milestones and KPIs? And I said, no, I cannot do that. Not no. when you're working in a field where you have a number of, of pieces to the puzzle. We know for sure that we do not have all the pieces to the puzzle. Secondly, we, we are not sure what kind of puzzle we're actually putting together. So when you work with people and you actually sit down and take the time to listen to them on how they want to co-create the, the organization that they're working with, you're going to have some unforeseen pushback. And then I, I drew up a rather classical a, um, scrum sprint timeline where you have like four sprints over a year, sprint length uh, being two months. And then you just circle and iterate through the tasks that you work with in the organization. And every time you you reach the end of the sprint, you have the retrospective and you get the feedback back into the management discipline on how do we want to go with the cultural activities. And in that sense, we can maneuver it. And he actually saw that um, as a good um, machine for producing cultural results because we tapped into his language Mm -hmm. that that, that kind of bridged it Mm -hmm. so it is it is really fun to have the continuum from a the highly regulated industry into something that is definitely more free and more focused on the interpersonal activities
0: because it's it's, it's interesting that because um you you come up when you start talking with somebody about that, about what it is that they want. So you create a certain end state, right? And it's like uh, when you do have a puzzle, a thousand-piece puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, on the box it, it shows you a picture yes. of what it is that you want to have in the end. Mm. The only thing that uh, that we have with these kind of changes is that we don't know what the pieces are. Mm. So... We don't know how this puzzle is going to be put together uh, up front. It's very difficult to determine that. Uh, you know where, what the end state is going to be, but it's very difficult to, to get there and say, like, well, first we do this piece, then 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 mm-hmm. this piece. Mm-hmm. Well, In, I, think, I think another layer of that, though,
1: I mean, we have, we have a broad brush picture of the end end state, but I think if, if what you're trying to do is, is involve... F- f- people in how that thing happens, you're inevitably going to get changes to that end state picture as well. If you're going to ask people to bring their creativity to work and their innovative um, powers in their conversations and and to create together, the, the end state that maybe five people at the top of an organization start with will be entirely different or quite different by the time you get to it. So that's another layer of of challenge of keeping that feedback loop going of where are we getting to Oh, actually we're hearing more voices so maybe where we're getting to is going to be slightly different from what we mm. imagined at the beginning and then there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a piece there's a significant role which I'm curious to hear how you approach this in terms of middle managers because people at the top maybe have this we need to change how we're doing this we're going to go for flat structures people at the bottom going yay we can start to make some more decisions what about the ones in the middle Mm. Where do they say what's their role of the middle manager in, in mm-hmm. making these things happen?
2: So this is where it gets really interesting because this is Good. this is <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of new science because nobody really knows yet what the what the role of the middle manager is gonna be. Um, so my my state on on this is if you look at your your products and your Processes and your projects laid out on a table. And you see them as being uh, small businesses. They have their own profit and loss. They have their own strategy. They have kind of what they do in their business. They, you have a product owner for it, you have a process owner, you have people working in that little business, little company. And you have a whole table of those. So, what you do as a middle manager is that you have three tasks to do. One, You have to be the coach slash manager for those working in those businesses. Now, that has to be on the long horizon because when you are working in that project for that process, uh, for the product, you are being uh, micro-coached and you get micro-feedback in that context. But as a middle manager... You have the long horizon. You coach on the long horizon to see what is needed from you, from the business side, from the uh, interpersonal side. Where's your emotional skill set? Where's that? Yes. So that's one. You you coach people on the long horizon. Secondly, if you are in entrepreneur or you own a business. You have two states that you work in. You work either in your business where you produce stuff or you work on your business where you look at the strategic movements on your stakeholders, shareholders, on the market conditions, on the, the regulation movements, and stuff like that. And hence, as a middle manager, you have to work on the business. You have to understand what kind of information you have to put back into the, the portfolio of businesses that you're working with and thirdly which is the most difficult one is you have to understand what is called white space management what goes on between the boxes where uh, budgets are unclear where strategy is fussy where you have all the politics and rumors and you have uh, interpretations and uh, all all that so it's all about understanding what goes on between your your company bits and pieces what are called managerial uh, um, spongy glue, if you can
1: say that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, as you were speaking, I had a picture of a, a, a human body, for example, and mm-hmm. each cell, if, if you like, could be a business unit, and each cell has to maximize its performance if it's going to carry oxygen or if it's going to be part of a muscle cell. But mitochondria, <laughs> so the energy center in each cell, also, it has to, while it's maximizing its own sort of mm. business unit, has to not work against the whole. Like you said, you're looking, taking a look at the long... The long view. Take a look at the big picture, and then there's the connective tissue within us that makes sure everything hangs together. Because, in, in a sense, mm-hmm. the whole thing is functioning as as a complex entity made mm-hmm. up of smaller complex entities. And I think that that kind of, well, through the you know the lenses that I I look at the world, that sort of points mm-hmm. to lots of new things like um, interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence. And I think also throw in there spiritual intelligence and the ability mm-hmm. to, to understand. Systems and purpose, and something bigger than we're just here to make money. So it's again quite an exciting space you must work in.
2: No, oh, it is, it is, oh, it is. Oh, okay. And uh, you said it yourself, purpose. Um, it's one thing that that I keep coming back to as a bearing point, uh, oh. and and I feel that people is coming back to it also. Um, this morning I had a chat with uh, with with somebody who was involved in a a reorganization. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they were frustrated about not uh, not really under, uh, understanding why they were in the business and uh, uh-huh. what they contributed with. They could see that from a rational point of view, but the emotional feeling of making sense of meaningfulness and of actually seeing the purpose of what they, they did and how they contributed was missing. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I, I see it on the other way around when when it is in place you can see that people's engagement rises and uh, wow. their their sick days lowers wow. so it really mm-hmm. kicks off
1: for wow. so there be people who i mean like you can see that from your own um, experience and and you've got you know stories to, to tell that say this stuff is is a really good way to go you know kind of focusing on purpose for for people who kind of maybe um not there yet like how do you get get that shift um, Mm. in the mindset to say, look, actually, you know, we do need to spend a bit of time on purpose. We need, because for some folks it can feel like a waste of time or, you know, surely we all know this or, um, but it's not just people not knowing, but it's also organizations beginning to wake up to the fact that purpose is now not just making money, that Mm. there's something else at stake. How do you get some of that shift in people?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question because it is really tough. First of all, if you look at the, well, there are two ways into that. One is if you have an existing organisation, it's way tougher to do than if you're starting up a new business. If you're starting up a new business, it's it's pretty easy to say we are here because we want to do yada 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 X Y Z. Oh. And it's easier to build the narrative and to, to create graphics and a, a, a PR profile and whatnot based on that. Um, but if you have an existing, like, let's say a, a, just a 10-year-old company or a 2-year-old company, oh. it's much tougher to create a narrative that's not natural to, to people. Uh, oh. So what we normally do is that we... We conduct a workshop where they, uh, first of all, they have to co-create their purpose. They have to describe it in terms of pictures or using post-its or uh, debate it with each other to come close to something that is a good sentence or some good sentences describing what they do and why they do it. And next is, if you have seen the, uh, the Simon Sinek videos on it, he has this nice narrative of the Apple uh, company where he breaks the golden circle down from the why to the how to the what. And that's yeah. actually what we do with the organizations. Just with the twist that Simon Sinek has just one how and one what, We've, we create a tree structure of hows and whats, because that's actually how the organization works. And it's fun then because everybody can pretty fast fill out the what do we do. We produce that. We have these documents. We have that process. But connecting the dots between what and how and why is pretty damn hard.
0: Um, but once um, you have them all connected, you, you, see, you can see the pattern. And you see the interconnectedness of the of all the, uh, the, the dimensions of everybody and what they're doing mm. so True. Th- the, the tree of the company so to speak becomes much more clearer once you have it but it'll be a lot of work
2: absolutely I, in, Interesting. in one place where, where we did that the executive vice president stood up and said
0: number one
2: if your project is not on this tree structure then stop it. Because then we, we agree it's not important. It oh. doesn't con- contribute to the purpose. Number two, if you see something that we're missing on the tree structure that can contribute to our purpose, then please add it on and then, then we'll prioritize it. Oh. And that, that was really really strong because they, they actually started killing projects based on that. <laughs> yeah, well because they had some
1: alignment with, with a, yeah. a bigger purpose. You realize that um, you know maybe what I'm doing is not is not purposeful at all. I, I come to work and I get paid and I'm busy, but it maybe mm. isn't related to purpose. And I think that's one of the big shifts is people going, why mm. are we actually here? What are we in business to to do? Mm. And be able mm. to make money for our shareholders. Yeah.
2: Right. So
1: the the um, the sort of the the, um, the the bigger question that we ask folks when they come on is, um, if, if you could change one thing about how work works for people, what would that be? Mm-hmm. So, bearing in mind some of the stuff you've talked about, um, yeah. what, what would you say?
2: I would say, if I can change one thing, it was oh. for, more, for more top managers to have the courage to take that leap of faith into doing it. And, yeah, and to, that's... Uh, to making, into making the shift towards being more, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have the feeling that, that, that we are popping popcorn. When you're popping popcorn, it's, it's, it's irreversible you're done, when it pops, <laughs> you, are, you are there. Yeah, and I yeah. see that so, mu- so many times with the, with the managers that once their popcorn pops, they will never go back. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I hope for many managers to really to have the courage to try and look in that way. Uh, and um, it takes for them uh, courage and for some of them also a lot of conversation and convincing to do that. Oh. Um, but it sticks with them when they do that.
1: Oh. Oh. I mean one of the things I'm thinking about any sort of anything that's involved, involved in change or transformation is, is, is you know, em- emotions <laughs> really like you know, you, I agree with you once you've seen something that, that significant it's, you, you can't unsee it, you can't unknow it mm. um, but the, when you, you've mentioned courage a few times just then in your answer I'm thinking that there is things like, big things like fear that get in the way mm. And because what you're describing earlier about, you know, uh, we don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. And in fact, we don't really have a fully clear picture of what the puzzle is going to look like at the end anyway. Mm. I can just think that the fear, the human things like fear and anger and, um, you know, all that stuff kind of gets in the way. What, what, what sort of you, what do you bring to the work that, that kind of helps people address some of those things or deal with some of those things, the sort of natural human stuff? Yeah
2: yeah it's it's interesting because there either you can go for the burning platform and you can have all the sentence like in in 10 years 40% of your companies will be gone it's documented
0: oh. and and you can also
2: say that uh, half of our jobs will be replaced by robots or or by co- computers oh. and you can have all these judgment day sayings that oh, um, oh. Uh, Disruption, disruption, and whatnot. I, it, it's just, it works better if you can paint to them in in rough strokes. As you said, the picture of a, a new kind of organization where it's 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 a great place to work, where it's it's more fun, and you can see you make money at the same time, where you have happy employees. Um, and uh, I think one of my, my last sentences when I have that, that, that kind of conversation is that oh. please remember that you have one life.
1: Oh. If it's
2: not fun to go to work, then why do you? Why don't you just then they quit and then take your bike and, and go for a ride and or go home and kiss your wife or what you oh. do? Oh. You have one life and it has to be fun. If, if you're still stuck in, in the old way of doing it, then uh, you, you need to change it. Mm. Uh, that's a that's a tough narrative, and it's emotional and, and whatnot. It's based on maybe two hours of conversation with the uh, with the management team, mm. but it's kind of my ending.
1: Mm. <laughs> it's it's it sounds as you as you spoke there. It sounds like there's a personal story in there somewhere <laughs> that mm. you've had your own you've had your own kind of epiphany. And you know, looking at your your um your career history, mm. was there some sort of epiphany that that happened for you, or did all this stuff just kind of come naturally and easy to you
2: No, I, it, it didn't come easy <laughs> no, I, 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 the first time I I was a manager uh, I had 12 people and, and we built software and that is like 10 or no, 15 years ago stuff like that um, I, it it ended good um, but it was a bumpy ride and I, I didn't know what I did um, I, I wasn't aware of how to do it. How the the 10 years after that, or 12 years after that, I, I, I was in the same situation. I took over a department, uh, reported to the top managers where I were, and I, I turned it around completely. I just gave out a, a lot of uh, delegation and mandate, involving people, listening to them, giving them uh, freedom of... Uh, of making decisions, uh, and the narrative that I used was the purpose of the company, and it was a whole way, whole new way of, of doing it. So I had that kind of epiphany, and that was in in two thousand and twelve. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's nearly four years of um, uh-huh. uh, conscious leadership, I would say. How Maybe
0: did the, I, how did the, uh, the the people that you did that with delegating and listening uh-huh. to them talking? How did they react?
2: Yeah, how did they take to it, yeah. Um, I think very fast they understood what we were doing and why. And they, uh, they thrived in it. I think it was tougher for my management peers and for mm. whom I reported to because it was really new to them.
1: Mm. Mm. Yes, I've heard similar stories of people saying that the biggest challenges were with their peers. Mm-hmm. When they're when they're managing teams and they're they're trying something new because they, they realise they have got to because they've got to try something new. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the the pushback came really from their peers, um, further up in the chain. People, you mm-hmm. know, senior managers in, from other stories I've heard were like, "Give it a try, go for it, because we've got to try something new." It's it's mm-hmm. an interesting thing. That that um, that fear seems to be kind of we're kind of back to talking about middle managers again. The fear seems mm-hmm. to sit with the middle managers of the letting go. And it's a conversation Roger and I have had a few times about letting go of power, letting go of control, letting go because um, you're kind of caught in the middle and <laughs> and you know, people are waiting for you to show results. Mm. But it is like you, you know, you come back to you said talking about making a leap of faith, and it really is, it really is a leap of faith, and it's it can be very, um, it can seem a little bit um, easy to say we'll just make the leap of faith, but it's yeah. it's uh, it's another story to actually do it.
2: As, uh, absolutely, one is that you m- might have the uh, epiphany and oh. want to to pop your own popcorn but it 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 really takes a change of behavior Uh Uh, and that's the tough part Uh the to to change behavior requires that you have the mindset in place if you just work on your, your on what you do without having the the fabric or the context of the mindset to do it in uh-huh. then you don't have an an understanding of how to freestyle when you get into conflict
1: uh-huh. and and that's
2: where you can really make the difference is that you understand that when you try to do this you will uh, run straight into conflict and uh, debates and you will sweat and you will be un- uncertain but if you uh, open up to your colleagues and to the employees and say okay now i'm i really want to try this i'm going to oh. make some mistakes uh, so please understand and and please coach me in how i should do it otherwise oh. Oh. then you can focus slowly on your uh, behavior if you have the mindset in place oh. but it takes time yeah if, uh, previously we we talked about purpose as being being one of the things. I, I just think that there are, there are many more aspects to it. It's highly complex, and I I never hide the com- complexity of it, but I say that you, you just have to to eat uh, the elephant by finding a smaller elephant to start oh, with. Oh.
1: <laughs> you you I imagine you have sometimes been in a situation where you're kind of the one that's holding the hope for an organization or a team, because people are when they're trying to do something that's radically different, they can feel a little bit lost and, and hopeless and frustrated and all those other, you know, emotions that come up. Um, and I know that's a really important role for folks like you. Um, when when One of the things that I ask people a lot is, so when an organization is getting to a point going, look, what we're doing is not working. We're looking <laughs> at um, retention go down, we're looking at um, attrition go up, we're looking at sick days go up, we're looking at profits go down. like all it, the alarm bells are ringing, basically. One of, the, one of the last things it seems that humans are good at is asking for support and to deal with surprising mm. situations. Mm. So how, how, does, how is it that you kind of um, keep people going um, in the midst of that what may be hopelessness or difficulty or challenge, mm. when all hands really should be going to the pump because we just got to keep working harder. It's not working, work harder. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. How, how do you stop people from falling back to old things that clearly don't work, but it's just the easiest thing to do?
2: Ah, that's a good question. There's a line of mechanisms that uh, that we use when we undergo these uh, transitions. Um, first of all, when when we uh, design the transformation projects, we uh, we always start with. Uh, it's it's very simple to have kind of a business justification why do we actually want to change what do we want to get out of it what kind of what kind of uh, can can we even measure it from a maybe from a a a numbers perspective or from a from a figuratively perspective yeah. can can we see when we are there and and if we then uh, maybe work 3 months and we can see the j curve kicking in where people get get sad or maybe even mad or they they get sick or they miss deadlines or they are not enthusiastic then we might have a a timeout, a small workshop where we talk about do you remember where we were three months ago? Do you remember where we're going? Mm. Pull out some of these success stories to celebrate Mm. them. Uh So we I I always have the eye on on the ball where we're going and I pull out success stories to show to them where we're we going, one of the the, the the cool things that that we normally do is that we we have a, a happiness measurement, for example, where we <laughs> um, once a week ask people uh, how was your week, and uh, they can answer from the crying smiley to the uh, to the uh, big D smiley with the with the grinning teeth.
0: Oh. A big smile,
2: yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and then we just pull that out and see, okay, we know that this is a frustrating time for you. We are changing your behavior. We are changing your ways of working. But please recall where we're going. This is going to be so, so, so. Uh, one thing that we also do is that we map out the network organization. Say so how how do you actually talk? Who, who do you work with? Who, who do you get sparing from? And, and then we do that measurement again six months or twelve months after to see uh, qualitatively how the organisational mesh has changed, mm. and we pull that out and we say, yeah, we, you were there, you are here now. Can you see the change? Can you feel the change?
0: Mm. So it's basically it's it's the same stories that you use to uh, people who are at point zero basically to to tell them to show them. Uh, what what can happen so when you try to convince somebody to be part of it you show them a success story of something yeah and then you use the same kind of success stories when people you know kind of lose a little bit of momentum mm. and the good thing is that you you probably have success stories related directly to them because they are actually in it and uh, yeah that sounds very oh. good so you're great.
1: you're keeping people looking forward and you're keeping yeah. people looking back as well so that they've got some...
0: Well, you have to know where you come kind of, from, right, in order yeah, to know yeah. where you're going. And,
1: and to track the progress, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: yeah, that's pretty cool.
1: So I'm what? kind
2: of the driver and the score counter when it comes to that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah. yeah that's right. I, I mean, I think there's an important... That's what I was I, I was partly referring to when I talked about being the one that holds the hope. I think you've got to <laughs> realize that's part of your role. It's the outsider coming yeah. in is... With all the other tasks that you carry out, it's about the one that holds the hope for folks and lets people know that things are kind of on track, or are things that things are changing or improving or whatever.
0: Yeah, well, it's 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 a it's a very significant change that people go through. I mean, it's something that it's the way they work, but it's also their mental state that changes, and the culture within the company and all those things. There's there's a lot going on, so you really need people there. Uh, you really need the champions in order to mm. keep moving forward and keep people uh, hopeful that, that the change is a good thing. And uh, yeah. yeah, okay. I was yeah, also surprised about the amount of uh, analytics that you uh, use in order to uh, track everything and to make sure that, that people are actually, mm. you know, happy. I mean, it, you talk about smiley faces and sad faces, but you know, in the long term, uh, that can be very significant metrics that you can use in order to show your progress
2: Mm. yeah absolutely it's 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 very few things that that you can attack from a scientific perspective when it comes to this field because Mm -hmm. it's 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 feelings and it's 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 human actions so what you can kind of track is the two things that, that we talked about here. How happy are you? And, and what kind of organizational mesh are we working with?
1: Mm. Oh. Uh, it's, it's an interesting, th- you know, I think that, that simple question, how happy are you? I, I think it, it's, well, I'm not sure that you could say had any kind of sort of sci- scientific uh, foundation, and it might not be part of the whole big data thing. I think it's a really essential question to ask people. Mm. Yeah. You know, when Would when I, I I was listening to a design professor talk about the importance of design in, in all aspects of our life, and he said, look, the simple question of his simple question of, do you like it, is essential. It's core to the work, mm. because if it doesn't have any kind, if it, if we don't find any way of tuning into it, if we don't feel happy or comfortable, that's going to make a huge impact on how we're applying ourselves in our workplace. So, I, it's it seems. It seems incredibly simple, but also incredibly powerful. Just to ask how are you, you know how happy are you, hmm. and and mark it on a scale.
2: And it also seems like you really care.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I like it because when I started out with digital or social business and those kind of things, asking if somebody was happy, I was I was always I was thought that it was a very sensible thing to ask somebody, mm. right? And then uh, a lot of folks were just focusing on statistics and and business outcomes and processes and and i don't know what and one of the things that came up quite regularly is that well you can't measure happiness and i was like yeah you can you just ask somebody Mm -hmm. and make sure that they can have a can give a fair answer Mm -hmm. so uninhibited And then you know, and when you do it over a long period of time, then you measure it. Then you have your metrics. So it makes a lot of sense to me anyway.
2: I will be honest and say I'm I'm not the scientific expert in how to measure happiness and how to actually uh, oh. attack that from a scientific perspective. There are like the other Danish guy Alexander Caruth who works a lot with that, and he could be interesting oh. for you to have in oh. one of the other podcasts. But oh. I I lean into his and their work, and I I plug out some of the uh, things from there, and I I have learned that. Um, when we undergo the transformations that just having the if you can 't call it a smile or a, a mm. habit measurement is a is a conversation starter
1: yeah you know, yeah absolutely, the, and that 's
2: absolutely what we absolutely. use yeah. it for absolutely
1: because it 's only ever going to be subjective as as and, most sure. things in the cosmos but um like you say, it's a conversation starter, because from there you can kind of pinpoint what are the things that are working, what are the things that are not working so well. Can I ask you a slightly left-field question? Because I was interested in your, <laughs> in your jazz piano, mm-hmm. and, and I have this idea that we're all, everything within us is connected to everything else. What 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 connection is that, do you think, to the work that you do uh, and the conversation we're having now?
0: Uh, beautiful question. Don't worry
1: about a little bit of dead air, because uh, I don't know if you compare to that question. But I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's it's integral to who you are and how you carry out your work and how you see the world. Yeah.
2: Okay. Let's uh, let uh, let me paint you a a picture. It's a uh, Monday night and uh, we're in the basement of our guitar player. He's called Pear and he plays the guitar. And there's the drummer and there's the keyboard player and there's a bass player and uh, me. I'm the singer and the jazz pianist. And we play a. Steely Dan, uh, Phil Collins, inspired thingy. So it's a lot of uh, jazzy and chords and uh, rhythm and uh, so thing. One of the things that we note to each other that we pay attention to is how is everybody's mood. And you can easily feel if, like the drummer is tired, or the the keyboard player is sad. You can feel that. He's not present. He plays under his, sta- his normal standard and stuff like that. So as, as a feeling, as, as the quote-unquote being a leader in the band or being a leader in the organization, you listen to people's mood and kind of tap into where, where they are when it comes to being present and being musical. If we play jazz, if you start improvising, and somebody is uh, is making an offbeat note. Uh, you have uh, two ways to go. Either you can say, "Oh, fuck it, that's just jazz, so be it," uh-huh. or you can say, "That was really interesting. Let's go <laughs> that way. Let uh-huh. let's go with that off note. Let's go with that off rhythm and make something out of it. Let's go with what you uh, proposed. It was a good proposal. Let's let's play around that and see how it brings us." And um, I think the the um, the understanding of, um, of playing in a band, when you uh-huh. take that figure into, uh, or that, that picture into a organization, is better than being on a sports team. When you are in a sports team, you, you are there to compete with some. When uh-huh. you are playing music, you are there to co-create something.
0: Yeah, true.
1: Absolutely,
0: yeah.
2: I mean,
1: the, the, my, uh, my interest is was purely from what my little tiny knowledge of jazz is, is <laughs> you know, the, the application of improvisation, which my interest is in improv, having done mm. my training in, in dramatic methods. It's about how we improvise and bring our spontaneity to situations.
2: Mm-hmm. And I guess what
1: you were describing was a, a jazz band, which is highly responsive. You notice the drummer's a bit tired, and you respond to that, mm. rather than getting stuck with it or getting angry with the drummer or... Having your energy get sapped because you've got a tired drummer, you know. It's, it's like, how do you work with what's happening in this moment when you've got a tired drummer? Okay. And that, that that story, you know. Let's let's see what we can make of this. is beautiful. So, do you mm. see that what you do in, in organizations is jazz, in that sense?
2: Uh, yeah, from time to time it is. When we when we, when we innovate, for example, it's jazz. We don't know what we're doing. We, we, we might know why we're doing it and we might know what kind of problem that we're solving. But how to actually get that? We don't know. Go ahead, make the the, oh. the mistakes fast, present them and say, oh, that was a good mistake, leave it. Or that was a good thing to work with, good feature that you brought in there, let's go that way.
1: Uh, uh.
2: But it's, it's contextual. From time to time, sure. you, you just need to be... Uh, strict and uh, produce stuff and then you just from time to time stop up and then you just uh, improvise and, and innovate also.
1: Well that's the thing because you don't go into a jazz group without having the technical ability as well you don't just get a bunch of people hand them any old random instrument and say make jazz. You're yeah. bringing some structure and some, some knowing of the craft to it as well. Yeah, but I'm it's sure. a really interesting interplay between technical ability and spontaneity Mm, and how you how you get those two balanced so that you get something quite beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I just I was kind of putting all, trying to put all these things together in terms of <laughs> what you do and, and who you are because I suspect that you could probably write an interesting series of articles on being bringing jazz into the workplace. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I might pick that up. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> I might actually do it. Yeah, oh, yeah write, it does it does sound very interesting because if you if you just change a little bit of the terminology that you in the story you just told, you can fit it into the workplace pretty mm-hmm. nicely. I was doing the same thing in my head. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So it, it it is a pretty good metaphor or analogy, whatever. I reckon. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Mm, true. Pretty cool. Okay. So. Okay. John. Yes, I thought you were going to say something. Carry on. I was not going to say anything. Okay. I am. I, I'm. I'm listening aptly. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I'm enjoying this. Uh, but uh, I, I'm looking at the time, and we're yes. hitting forty-five minutes. So, uh, um, I think that last uh, relatively personal question and the great metaphor, and. Uh, uh, conjunction between jazz and work is uh, is a very nice one and improvisation and ad- adaptation and those oh. kind of things but still using certain techniques and specializations in order to achieve uh, a common end goal mm. um, I think that's pretty interesting um, so on that note if you guys agree uh-huh. I would say we can end the podcast, uh-huh. and uh, oh, I'm making a mess here. Um, so um, let me close it up, and then we can talk a little bit more afterwards. But sure. uh, so, thank you for everybody who's been listening. Thanks, everybody who's been listening. Uh, this was the Reimagining Work Podcast with a guest, Eric Oysteingard. And we're not going to try and pronounce it in the (laughs) Danish way. Because that would be horrible. So, um, and John Wenger uh, as the co-host. And me for the other co-host, Rogi Nord. Um, Please follow us. Leave a, uh, a review on iTunes. That's always very helpful. And, well, you can find us on the website and anywhere else. So, Eric, thank you very much it was an enlightening conversation I enjoyed it very much and um, and I'll be reflecting on the application of jazz <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah it, it's a good one so maybe I need to read up on jazz a little bit so yeah. but, uh, that's a good thing okay so thank you and goodbye